0: Please hear John chapter 11, verse 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go.
1: Our Father, I give you my thanks for what you have already prayed for this service. I give you my thanks for the intentions that you already have and you have had from before the foundation of the world. Lord, that seems unlikely to us. Maybe that seems impossible to us, but all things are possible with you. And I pray, Father, that for the glory of your name and for the building of our faith, you would come now and work among us and show us that you're the God who is with us and you're the God who has been with us and you are the God who will always be with us. Show us today, Lord Jesus, that the things we're about to study are not just words on a page. They're not just a story in a book, but that they are telling of the living God who does living work among his people. Oh Jesus, I am so grateful for the time we have shared this week, meditating on the verses before us. And I pray now that you would move in power among your people and I thank you for what you'll do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Due to the threats of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, not all of them, but the most powerful among them, Jesus felt compelled to escape the promised land. And so he did. He went to the east and he went back to the place where John the Baptist was baptizing at first and the place where he himself was immersed in the water, the place where he himself first received the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit, as John put it, came upon him and remained upon him forever. There many people traveled to Jesus. There many people believed in Jesus. There he taught them for a period of about three months. But when he heard the news that his friend Lazarus had fallen ill and that it was serious, When he heard the news that Lazarus' family wanted Jesus to come back into the promised land of the city of Bethany, which was two miles to the east of Jerusalem, he knew that the Father was speaking to him. And that's the important point here. It wasn't just that Jesus heard a word from his friends and wanted to respond to his friends. He heard the voice of his Father in the plea of his friends, come back into the promised land. And because he was fully submitted to the Father, he obeyed that word and he led his disciples on a journey. Before they took that journey, Jesus had told his disciples that Lazarus's illness would not eventuate in death, but that it would ultimately be about the glory of God in that Jesus himself would be glorified through it. They didn't understand exactly what he was saying. They were not lacking in faith. They had faith in him, but they were weak in faith. They were lacking in their understanding. And so Jesus, in a a number of ways that I just think are so wise and skillful, raised the issue of the weakness of their faith, even as he raised the issue of the revelation of his glory. Because his intention was to build their faith through the revelation of his glory in light of Lazarus' illness and eventual death. After they made the journey, Jesus met with Lazarus' sisters, first Martha and then Mary, and he did the exact same thing. He put on the table the issue of the glory of God, and he masterfully, without insulting or in any way demeaning these precious women, raised the issue of the weakness of their faith. They did have faith. In particular, Martha probably gives the most eloquent confession of faith of Jesus in the entire Gospel of John. But, but having said what she said about Jesus, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, you are the one who has been sent into the world. She understood so much, but she didn't track with what he was saying. She saw, but she didn't see. She believed, but she didn't believe quite everything that Christ wanted her to believe. And so he raised for her the issue of his glory and her faith because he intended to, in her life and in Mary's life and in the lives of everybody involved in the story, to build their faith through the exaltation of his glory. Later, we'll see that Jesus worked also in the lives of unbelievers. But please trust me, in the heart of this story, he is working with believers and helping them to believe. He's working with people who have already seen and helping them to see greater things, more real things, more powerful, gripping, transforming things. We should not think that. Jesus raised these issues in a cold manner or in a stoic manner as though he was sort of distant from those he taught, as though he sort of saw himself as a professional discipler or a a, a sort of a corporate savior or something like that. He had a heart for his people, beloved. John repeatedly tells us that he loved this family, and surely he loved everybody involved in this story. John repeatedly shows us how Jesus entered into the pain and suffering of his dear friends. In fact, Jesus was so moved by the horror of death and all that it implies. He was so moved by the powerful grief that his friends were feeling that John said that inwardly he felt a rage rise up within him. Twice, John says it. A rage rose up within Jesus. A rage at death. A rage at sin. A rage at suffering. A rage at all that's involved in these things. And it says at some point that Jesus was so moved by the grief of his beloved ones that he himself broke into tears. Jesus wept. And I told you last week that that verse more properly probably should be translated, Jesus broke into tears. Jesus expressed the deep passion that he had for his people because he was demonstrating for us this principle that we weep with those who weep. The one who ultimately had no need to weep for anything at all wept with those who wept because he loved them, beloved. He, above all people, knew the hope that was coming to them, right? And yet he wept because he loved, and he loved very, very deeply. When he arrived at Lazarus's tomb, he told them to roll away the stone, even though Lazarus had been there for four days. You just heard Jesse read that Martha objected because she was concerned about the stench. But Jesus said to her in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. He said that to her, but he said it in the hearing of everybody. Mary heard this. The Jews that were there heard this. His disciples heard this. And by the grace of God, through the gospel of John, we are hearing this. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? With that question in mind, he lifted up his eyes and he prayed this prayer in verses 41 and 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And having prayed this prayer, Jesus lowered his eyes, fixed his eyes upon the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. In a very short time, Lazarus obeyed his master. And then Jesus commanded that he be loosed from his grave clothes, which the people did loose him, and Lazarus was free Lazarus was free in Christ. His body was restored. His faith was built. And Jesus was certainly revealed as a glorious Savior in their midst. Jesus indeed revealed what he intended to reveal and reveal and built the faith of all who were there. And what I want to do today is press more into the details of his prayer so that we can understand more about the depth of the glory he was trying to reveal and so that we too can grow in faith. Beloved, there's so much going on here. His prayer was not incidental. It was not perfunctory. It's central to the meaning of what Jesus was trying to reveal here. And so we're going to press into the prayer in four parts. First, I want to look at the, the word Father. Second, I want to look at Jesus' words, I thank you. And then I want to meditate with you on what Jesus was thanking the Father for. And then finally, I want to look with you at why Jesus prayed this prayer out loud at all. So first, let's begin by thinking about this word, Father. It's a word that would be easy to take for granted, but one that we should take some time to ponder. John begins his gospel by calling Jesus the Word and by demonstrating the fact that he is God. So from the beginning, we have no doubt that this one called the Word that we soon find out is named Jesus. We have no doubt that he is, in fact, God. But then in chapter 1, verse 14, John makes a distinction between God the Father and God the Son. That's the first time he uses these words, God the Father, God the Son. So both are God, but somehow there is a distinction between them. He writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us, came the tabernacle among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So at this point, John teaches us that the Son is God, that he is marked by glory, and that somehow that glory comes from his relationship to God the Father. Jesus then, in chapter 335, first calls God his Father. And there, Jesus says that the Father loves the Son. This is very important, beloved. Because this is the first time we hear that the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is again not just a cold, stoic, distant relationship between two entities that are somehow the same deity, but we see that there is a passion of love flowing between them. And John will say much more about this in the chapters to come. The, the being of God is characterized by the love of God for God. There is warmth in God. There is relationship in God. There is care in God. There is concern in God. There is deep valuing of God by God. And then beginning in chapter 5, Jesus begins to make a number of claims about his relationship to God the Father, some of which get him into deep trouble, all of which are the reason why he is now under the threat of death. And they culminate finally in chapter 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are one. I don't see how anybody could make a more profound statement about their relationship to God than that. I am one with the Father. The Father is one with me. He reiterates this in 1038 and says the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So when we come to his prayer in chapter 11, verse 41, and we hear him say, Father, before he says anything else, beloved, we have to stop and pause and take that in. That is not an accidental word choice. That is a purposeful, meaningful word choice. Jesus is trying to communicate the nature, the primacy, the importance of the relationship between God the Son and God the Father by speaking of him in respectful terms, by speaking of him in relational terms, by speaking of him in familial, familiar loving terms. Only a son says father, right? In addition to this, I think Jesus was also trying to communicate that there is a measure of equality between the Father and the Son, but that Jesus has submitted to the Father and gladly looked, as a man at least, to the Father as his source. What I'm trying to say is that you don't call a person your father if you're equal with that person exactly. You call a person your father because they're over you. You call a person your father because in some way, shape, or form they are your your source, Now, as a a person who has a divine nature, in his divine nature, Jesus does not look to the Father as his source because Jesus himself is God. Jesus himself is, is life. He's not just full of life. He is life. Jesus himself is being. Jesus himself is his own source. As God, he fully shares in all the attributes of God, which means that he cannot look to the Father as a source with regard to his divine nature. But as mysterious as it is, as difficult as it might be for us to comprehend, as a human being, and in his human nature, Jesus did have a source. And that singular source was none less or none else than God the Father himself. If you want to look more into that, you can look at Hebrews 2.11 and Hebrews 5.9. We won't look at that today, but if you want to look later, Hebrews 2.11 and 5.9, you'll see Jesus talking about God the Father as his source, He's speaking as a man. And as a man, Jesus was fully and gladly submitted to the Father, and therefore he gladly lived only by this creed. The only things that come out of my mouth are the things that I hear the Father say. That's it. I don't know how you get more submitted than that, beloved. Can you as parents imagine any of your children being that submitted to you? I only speak what I hear my father and mother saying. Jesus could also look to the Father and say, the only things that I do on this earth, from sunrise to sunset and well beyond, through the night, is what I see my Father doing. When I see him move, I move. When I don't see him move, I stay put. The Son, beloved, was fully, fully submitted to his Father in speech, in actions, and deep, deep, deep within his heart. We can rest assured that Jesus did all he did and said all he said, in prayerful communion with his Father, period and end of story. And he did it in joyful submission to his Father, period and end of story. Please don't look too quickly past the fact that Jesus begins this public prayer by calling God his Father. The next thing Jesus says in verse 41 is, I thank you, Father, I thank you. To give thanks is to express gratitude. It is to bless the name of one who has been a blessing to you or to others around you. It is to humbly acknowledge that someone greater than you has shown you the beauty or the magnitude of who they are or that someone greater than you has done something for you or for those around you. In this case, Jesus thanks his Father for a grace that had already been granted to him and to others through him. But before we press into the details of that, I just want us to notice that the giving of thanks further shows that Jesus was submitted to the Father. You thank one who's greater than you. You thank one who's blessed you. You thank one who has responded to you. And Jesus, with a a humble heart of a child, was thanking God his Father. You may remember the story from Luke chapter 17. Um, I didn't remember where it was, but I did remember the story. You probably will remember the story of where Jesus healed ten people who had the disease of leprosy. He did it in a miraculous way. He did it when they were actually out of his presence. And when all ten of them were healed, nine of them looked at themselves and said, awesome, uh, time to go about my day. And they off they went. One of them looked at his body, saw that he was healed, gave praise to God, and flew back to Jesus to say, thank you. Thank you. Jesus was amazed. He said, where are the other nine guys? They just changed their lives. I just gave them healing, I gave them health, I gave them hope, and where are they? Why can't they return and say these simple words, thank you? This last week I was in California, and every time I go there, I search out my old pastors, I search out my old churches, and I knock on their door and I just say, I want to say thank you for all of your investment in me. Often they think that I'm there to raise money for some mission that we're doing, and I have to tell them, no, I don't care about your money, I'm here to say thank you it's surprising to them because so few people return to say thank you, but I learned this from my Lord. I learned this from our Savior. He looked at the Father and said, Father, I thank you. He's not like the nine who doesn't give thanks to God. He's like the one who returns and says thanks, but the difference between Jesus and that leper is that he had no need inside of himself. That leper was giving thanks to God for what God did for him. Jesus was thanking God for what he had done for others through him. Oh, what a great God. Oh, what a thankful Savior that we have. Jesus, our Savior, said, Father, I thank you. And with that, here's what Jesus gave thanks to the Father for. Look at the end of verse 41 and the beginning of verse 42. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Now, these words imply that Jesus had previously spoken with the Father about Lazarus, about his family, about the disciples, about the Jews that were there, about us who are hearing this story. The, the prayer Jesus prayed at the tomb of Lazarus was not the first prayer he prayed for Lazarus. I thank you, Father, that you have already heard me. His words imply that he had already discerned the Father's will about this situation and expressed his own heart and mind to the Father about these people. These words imply that Jesus then received all that he asked from the Father and that he prayed that which he was praying in the tomb in absolute assurance that he had been heard by his Father. And since the Father heard the Son when he prayed, the Son had deep assurance from the Father after he prayed. Please let that sink in. Because the Son was heard by the Father when he prayed, he had deep assurance from the Father after he prayed. When Jesus stood at that tomb, he had no doubt about what was going to happen. And I'll tell you why he didn't have doubt. It wasn't primarily because of the power of his hand. It was because of the power of his communion with his Father. He already knew what was going to be granted. He already knew that Lazarus would rise from the dead. He knew that his faithful friends, that their faith would be built. He saw me preaching in this place at this time, and he knew that our faith would be built. Jesus saw it all because the Father had already granted it all, beloved. He had already seen everything the Father had planned to do, and so he had deep, persuasive, powerful, peace-giving assurance when he rose his voice in prayer at that time. And this instance of intercession for others, this instance of the release of grace for others, was not a surprise to Jesus and it was not unusual for him. Rather, it was part and parcel of the ongoing and eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And let me just take a minute and explain to you what I mean. The words I knew at the beginning of verse 42 literally mean I see, but... but You should hear them something like this. I have such perfect sight of something that I therefore have perfect knowledge of it. That's why the words I see are actually translated, I know. I see this thing so perfectly that I also know it perfectly. So I think we can accurately translate the first words of verse 42 as, I have always known, or I have perfectly known. And then when we come to the word here there at the end of that first clause there, We can see even in English that that is an ongoing present tense verb so that we should hear the first clause of verse 42 like this. I have always known that you are always hearing me, Father. Or I have perfectly known that you ceaselessly listen to me and grant that for which I ask. The Son had perpetual knowledge of the Father's perpetual pleasure in him. The Son possessed the eternal joy of being eternally heard by the Father. And this ceaseless communication, this ceaseless partnership in the details of creation is the heart of the relationship between the Father and the Son. It is at the heart of the glory of God. Please, please hear what I'm saying. There's more going on in this story than a prayer and an answer. There's so much more going on. Underneath the details of the need of this story, the plea of this story, the response of this story, is a profoundly deep, loving, and eternal relationship that manifested itself through the partnership of intercession and response. The will of the Father and the pleas of the Son for Lazarus, for his family, for the disciples, for the Jews, for all of us hearing this story were part of the eternal bond of love and action that have always characterized the relationship of God with God. Please, please take the time to meditate on this phrase. It is profoundly significant for our lives today even. I have always known that you are always hearing me. This is what Jesus was thanking the Father for. But if he was so confident in that, why did he pray this prayer at the tomb? And why did he pray it out loud? Well, he tells us in verse 42. He says, I said this, not for our sake. I said this on account of the people standing around. He said this for the sake of Martha. He said this for the sake of Mary. He said this for the sake of all their friends who were gathered there and weeping there and wondering what he would do, wondering where he had been. He said this for the sake of his disciples whose faith he so much wanted to build. He said this for the sake of all who would hear this story throughout the corridors of time, including us, beloved. He said this for the sake of others and not for the sake of himself. And he said this because he wanted then and he wants right in this moment something very significant to happen. Namely, he wanted them and he wants us to grow in faith. He wants us to grow in trusting God. He wants us to grow in believing in God. He wants us to grow in our ability and marching forward in life in relationship with God, in communion with God, bearing fruit for him through our relationship with him. This is what he wants. And to be more precise, he did not simply want them to know that he had the power of life in his hand. He did not simply want them to know that he could display his power through nothing more than his words, Lazarus, come out. He wanted them to know, not simply, that he was there to prove the claim of verse 25 that he is the resurrection and the life. He wanted them to know, not simply, that he loved his own with great and everlasting love. Rather, you'll see there, he wanted them to know, and he wants us to know, that he was indeed sent from the Father into the world. He wanted them to know, and he wants us to know, that the glory of the Son is the glory of one who came out from the Father. He wants us to know that he was the long-awaited deliverer who had finally been sent. To put this another way, Jesus was not expecting everybody to look at him there that day and say, wow, is that guy amazing, or what? Jesus was not, expect, was not himself saying, look at me, I'm an amazing guy, you should really follow me, you should really worship me, let's grow this thing, let's do this thing, let's go. He was not self-centered in that way. Jesus was saying, please, when you see me and when you see what I just did or when you see what I'm about to do, understand something, that I was sent by the Father and I'm doing everything I'm doing, not to glorify myself in a fleshly way, to demonstrate the fact that I have been sent by God and I get my power from God. I take my words from God. I do my actions through the the wisdom and the power and the grace of God. And so when I speak and when I act, when I reveal my glory, I am revealing the glory of God. Look to me. Look what I've done and see God. See somehow the fellowship between the Father and the Son. Jesus told them, beloved, that if they would only believe they would see his glory what a promise that is and on the one hand his glory was demonstrated in the release of great power where life overcame death i don't know about you i've stood at a lot of gravesides in my life i've never seen a person walk out of their grave i've never seen that with my eyes i believe jesus could do it but i think i would believe at a different level if i saw it with my eyes i've never seen that so certainly The resurrection of Lazarus was a revelation of the glory of Jesus, but the heart of the glory of God manifest through Jesus was the revelation of the communion shared between the Father and the Son. This communion is what manifests itself in the mission to overcome death the physical death of Lazarus as a symbol of the spiritual death of all who have fallen into sin. The heart of the glory of God is the intimacy of God with God. The heart of the glory of God is the intimacy of the Father with the Son and the Son with the Father. After Jesus had prayed, he fixed his eyes on that tomb and he lifted his voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And in short time, as we've already seen Lazarus obeyed, he was unbound from his grave clothes and he went about his life. He was free. We've already seen that last week. We've seen it a little bit this week. But perhaps we have yet to see this. And I think really this is what's at the heart of the entire story. The resurrection of Lazarus was accomplished not so much at the tomb as it was at the throne. The resurrection of Lazarus was proven at the tomb, but it actually transpired at the throne of God. And I don't mean while Jesus stood there in front of the tomb and prayed. I mean long before he ever walked up to that tomb. When he went into his father's presence and he pled with him, when he interceded for others and the father joyfully said, yes, my son, all you have asked, I will grant. That is when Lazarus' resurrection was accomplished it had to be proven in space and time, but again, it was actually accomplished at the throne. Yes, Jesus was glorified by this miracle. Jesus unveiled his authority, his power, his love over, over, over death and for his people for all to see. But beloved, more central to the manifestation of his glory was the close bond that was revealed between the Father and the Son. In raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus did prove the claim of 10, 20, or 11.25. I am the resurrection and the life. I don't give these things. I am these things. Now I could stand here and claim that too, but I can't prove it because I'm not those things. Jesus made the claim earlier in the conversation. He proved the claim at the tomb of Lazarus. But I want to suggest to you that more at the heart of what he went to reveal at the tomb of Lazarus was chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. He showed, he proved beyond a shadow of doubt at that tomb that his communion with the Father is so deep, so strong, so real, so powerful, so passionate that even when he speaks to a dead man, that dead man must obey him and come out of his tomb. The revelation of the glory of God is power over death. Yes, it is. But more profoundly, it is the revelation of the communion between the Father and the Son. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I have always known that you are always hearing me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Now, lest we think that this teaching was just a teaching for a moment and not for all the time, please turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to look at Hebrews 7, uh, verses 23 through 25. just want to read the verses, make a few brief comments, and show how this is a living truth for us this day. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, the author writes, The former priests, and he means by that high priests, they were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, he lives forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the high priest of heaven and earth forever because the Father appointed him to that position and Jesus lives forever. Therefore, he has the ability To save to the uttermost, to the very last scintilla, Jesus has the ability to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God by simple faith in him, specifically because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives 24 hours a day every second of every day, without ceasing and without exception, he lives to pray for us by name and by circumstance. This is the core of his life as high priest of the people of God. He always lives to advocate for us. He always lives to build our faith through the triumphs and the tragedies of life. And since he always knows that the Father is always hearing them, his prayers that is, He lives with the constant joy that we're gonna experience the kind of resurrection life that Lazarus and his family and his friends did on that day. He lives with the constant joy that the Father will grant him all for which he intercedes. So as it was for Lazarus at his resurrection, so it is for us. This is a living reality for us. Our ability to endure temptation, Our ability to overcome sin and all that's involved in that. Our restoration when we give in to sin and do the wrong thing. Our ability to persevere through suffering. Our growth in and through the various trials of life. Our triumphs over Satan and this world. Our fruitfulness and our final victory over death will be proven in the world, but beloved, they are already accomplished at the throne. The work Jesus does in us primarily happens as he intercedes for us without end. By faith in Christ, we are being delivered, and we will finally be delivered from all that binds us, just like Lazarus was, because the Father is always hearing the Son. Beloved, we just have to hear this and believe Our deliverance has already been granted. It is what? Finished, right? It is finished. Yes, it has to be worked out still. I agree, and I know that's painful at times. I know it's frustrating at times. I know it causes us to doubt at times, but the question for us is the same as it was for them. Do we believe the Scripture? Do we believe the words of our Master? Has not Jesus told us that if we will only believe, we will see His glory? I want to suggest to you that Jesus has told us that today. If we'll only believe, we will see his glory. He's told us that by way of implication through John 11, but he's also told us more explicitly in texts like 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. You don't have to turn there, but just hear the words. These are the words of God to us. Now the Lord, meaning Jesus, is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. Freedom for what? I'll tell you what it is. Freedom to see the glory of God. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beloved, the promise is ours. If we will only believe, we will see the glory of God. And as we actually with our eyes see through the Word and by the Spirit, the glory of Jesus Christ We are transformed into the image of the one who is changing us from one degree of glory to another, from one degree of sanctification to another, from one degree of holiness to another, from one degree of being devoted to our Father to the next degree of being devoted to our Father, from one degree of belief to another degree of belief. And so again, the question for us is not, does this promise apply to us? The question for us is the same as it was for them. Do we believe? I would assume by knowing many of you that the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus is here kindly to use the story of John chapter 11 and other perhaps circumstances that are happening in our lives right now to reveal his glory and to build our faith. But when he reveals his glory, the main thing he's gonna be showing us is that he's already accomplished all things for us through intimacy with the Father at the throne. Now over the years I've told you repeatedly about my friend Robert because I just can't help talking about him. And I'm going to tell you the story again. Years ago he finally came to Christ, but in October of 1986, 31 years ago this month, his believing brother-in-law, Dwight, told him to read 1 John. He did, and he told me to read it a few hours later. I waited about two days, but I read it at two thirty, three 3 o'clock in the morning on October 26, 1986, and by chapter 3, I was saved. God radically changed my life that morning, radically changed my life. I saw Robert about seven thirty, eight 8 o'clock that morning. I told him everything that would happen to me, had happened to me. I told him my testimony. Later, I went to a church near to my house. I became a vital part of that church. The pastor there... Jim Wilson went with me to talk to Robert and his girlfriend Donna. We explained the gospel in more depth to them. And Robert was reminding me this week that he actually did make a confession of faith in Jesus way back then, and we actually baptized him. I forgot about that. We actually did baptize him back then, but they did not walk with Jesus. Something happened in their heart, but it wasn't quite salvation because they kept walking in the ways of the world. They kept walking in the ways of the devil, and he became more and more rebellious to my advances, trying to reach out to him and woo him back into the fold of of God. And so at some point, I concluded that he wasn't truly a believer, and I let him go, but I kept praying for him, and I kept praying for him, and I kept sharing the gospel with him every time God would give me a chance. In about 1996 or so, Kim and I were up in Northern California. I was going to seminary, preparing for the ministry. And for whatever reason, Kimmy, I don't remember exactly what it was, but we felt overcome one day with a passion to pray for Robert. So we stopped what we were doing. We literally got on our faces. We were on our bed, but we got on our faces, our heads in our hands, and we're just pleading for Robert's soul, pleading with tears, pleading with passion, please God, save him. And at some point, Kim just sat up and said, it's done. God heard our prayer. Robert is going to be saved. I could see that look in her eyes. I knew she was right. And so we bowed our heads again. And instead of pleading, we began to give thanks. Thank you, Father. Thank you for hearing our prayers. But then a year went by. And two years went by. Five years went by. Ten years went by. Some Easter, about seven, eight years ago, I got done praying right here at this place. We wrapped church up. We start driving down to Edina, going down to Kim's dad's house for Easter dinner. And I get a text. When I was at the corner of parish and the freeway right down there, getting ready to get on the freeway, I get a text from Robert. It says, he is risen indeed. (laughs) I saw that text, and this is what started happening to me that day. I started crying. I was like, oh, I can't call him now. I won't be able to drive. So I turned my phone off, and I was like, Lord Jesus, please let it be. Got to Kim's dad's house as fast as I could within legal parameters, I do assure you. I went to a corner in his house. When I got there, I called Robert. I was like, brother, what happened? Tell me what happened. You have to understand, this guy is closer to me than any of my relatives, any of my siblings, any of my relatives except my parents. I would say that. he's His heart is my heart. My heart is his heart. He's like, Robert, tell me what happened. And sure enough, God had been working in his life for about two years And he came to faith in Christ, earnestly came to faith in Christ, and he he began to tell me about the fruits of repentance that were in his life, and I believed him. I just knew he had really come to faith, and in fact, he has shown over the years that God did really save him that day. God did do a mighty work in his heart that day. I had the privilege last week to spend two days with Robert out in California with his family and I just can't tell you how encouraging it was to me, how worship-evoking it was to me to listen to him tell me about his ministry. He's now full-time head of maintenance, and all that implies at his church. It's a fairly large church, so he has a big job. And he brought me to his church mainly just to show off. He wanted to show me his life, and everywhere we went, people were like, Robert, Robert, so good to see you, hugging him, blessing him. I cannot tell you what it was like to see the fruit coming out of this man's life. It was amazing to see, beloved. It was amazing for me to see. It was so worship-evoking to see the salvific work of Jesus in the life of my friend, though it was proven in time. It was proven on an Easter Sunday for me. But the truth of the matter is that it was accomplished at the throne of God. And I do mean in part that it was accomplished in the late 90s when Kim and I were bowed before the throne and pleading for his soul. But you know what I think really happened that day? It's not so much that Jesus answered our prayers. It's that Jesus revealed to us what he planned to do in Robert's life from before the foundation of the world. Robert's salvation was accomplished at the throne as the son pled with the father, save him, father. Make him a fruitful tree, father. And the father said yes, and so all has been accomplished. And by the way, it was a great joy for me to see. I had heard about this, but I hadn't seen her face-to-face since this happened. But his 90-year-old mother, who is now on her deathbed, came to faith in Jesus about five years ago at the age of 85. Can you imagine that? She saw what Robert had done in... What God had done in Robert's life and she bowed her knees before Christ and I had the privilege of laying my hand on her head. She's been like a mother to me since I was 12 years old and last Tuesday I got to lay my hand on her head and pray a prayer of blessing over her and rejoice in Jesus with her and as much as I rejoiced, all this stuff was stirring in my heart so I knew it had been accomplished a long, long time before that as the son pled to the father. The glory he revealed in the salvation of this family was the glory of the partnership, the intimacy between the Father and the Son. By the way, number two, Robert's sister, Debbie, was there. She came to Christ before either one of us did. It was her husband who had told Robert to read 1 John, who told me to read 1 John. She was there this week, and I got to talk with her And on the one hand, we were rejoicing about what God had done in my life and in Robert's life and in her mother's life. But on the other hand, she took me outside at one point and just began to cry and told me about her 31-year-old son named Michael, who has been struggling with schizophrenia for the last 10 years and is pretty much just non-functional, had to move back into the house. And her heart is just broken, beloved. She is just exhausted she was pleading with me telling me I've prayed and prayed and God doesn't seem to be wanting to act and so I got to encourage her faith and exhort her faith and basically what I said to her is Debbie remember what God has done and trust him for what he will do and I had all this fresh in my mind and so I was able to say to her I don't know what the fullness of God's intentions are for your son but what I know is that whatever Jesus intends it's already accomplished and now he invites us to plead with him in prayer and yes through tears of course through tears but we don't grieve the way the world grieves. We hope with a godly hope because we have our eyes fixed on God and we trust his heart. And so I promised her that as I had prayed for Robert, so I would pray for her son and plead for her son that he too would be saved and come back to a right mind. And I encourage you to join, join me in those prayers for him. She, I have her permission to share this with you today, by the way. She wants us to pray for her son. Again, I don't know all that's going to happen in Michael's life, but what I know is whatever God intends has already been accomplished at the throne. That's what I know. And so we plead on the basis of the heart of God that's already bent toward him, bent toward us. And I do want to say one more time that what's true of Lazarus, what's true of Robert and his family, what's true of Debbie's son, Michael, is true of all of us who have simple faith in Jesus. Our salvation, our sanctification, our deliverance from the power of the world— our final overcoming of death and our final transformation into the image of Jesus Christ is already accomplished. And the question is, do we believe? Are we willing to walk out into this world today in the belief that the power of the prayers of the Son heard by the Father are actually the things that are guiding our lives? Are we willing to bow before Him and let Him do His work in us, knowing that it will be proven here, but accomplished there? Let me pray now that God will help us believe. Father, I thank you so much for John chapter 11. I I just don't even know how to put it into words, Lord. The words coming to my mind would sound sappy, so I'm just not gonna say them, but you know my heart, Lord. You know how much I have benefited from this chapter, and I trust that you have blessed your people through it as well. I pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would continue using it to work in our lives. I pray that you'd continue to reveal the weakness of our faith, Lord. And I pray that you'd continue to reveal to us your glory, the glory as of the only Son sent from the Father. I pray that you would use it to sanctify us, to build our faith, to bring us further and further into what it means to be shaped into your image. I pray that you would use it, Father, for the glory of your name and the good of our own souls. And like Jesus, we thank you because you have already heard your Son. We thank you, with Jesus, that you have always been hearing and you will always hear the Son. And we thank you that whatever he's praying for you is as good as done because you are pleased to hear his prayers. Oh Father, please now build our faith as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.